Welcome to the I.O. Podcast, an initiative of the Electronic Communication Committee of the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology, sharing perspectives and challenging ideas on current topics and trends in the field. I am your host, Kelly Stewart. The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the presenters and guests and do not reflect the views or constitute any official statement of the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology. In the field of I.O., we've observed a lot of scientific progress being made on behalf of both academics and practitioners towards improving our modern workforce. We as I.O. psychologists are encouraged to operate in terms of what we call the scientist-practitioner model, and for researchers and practitioners to share knowledge and communicate in order to reach outcomes that are mutually beneficial. To many, this concept sounds sensible and, of course, important for the enrichment of learning in our field. But I think it's quite evident that, in some circumstances, this path of communication and alignment and perspective is easier said than done. On this episode of the IO Podcast, we had the pleasure of interviewing the immediate, past, present, and future presidents of SIOP, or the SIOP Triumvirate, as we like to say and they'll be providing their own unique perspectives on the topic of the scientist-practitioner model. They'll also be talking about PSYOP advocacy initiatives, including strengthening government relations, and discussing what PSYOP has done and is currently doing in order to optimize the experience for PSYOP members. So stay tuned. It's hard to operationalize uh, what the scientists practitioner model means and there's not as much communication and knowledge sharing going on as we'd like. Um, I read in a tip article recently this term uh, lip service which basically means that we as IO psychologists tend to complain about the scientist practitioner gap but we aren't necessarily making a lot of moves or uh, calls to action to close the gap. In your opinion are we as a field making any progress towards resolving this issue? And if so, what efforts, if any, has PSYOP made or is PSYOP currently making to align the work and visions of research and practitioners? Any of us want to start? That was Fred Oswald. For those of you who don't know, Dr. Oswald serves as our current president and as a fellow of PSYOP. He's a professor in the Department of Psychology at Rice University, and related to talent analytics, he publishes various types of methodological research. His expertise, extensive publications, and large-scale grant-funded research as an organizational psychologist addresses issues pertaining to personnel selection, college admission, military selection and classification, and school-to-work transition. Currently, Dr. Oswald is an associate editor of four journals and serves on 10 editorial boards. I'm going to take a contrarian view, so why don't you start with <laughs> and, and, and let me be obnoxious later. <laughs> okay. I think my view will be a bit contrarian. Me too. Um, I, think, I think the answer is complex uh, because, as, as you noted, that it's hard to kind of define the boundaries of what scientist practitioner means. I, I think one way to frame the issue of a uh, of scientist practitioner 
uh, bridges, uh, let's not call it gaps, just say there are bridges, um, is to say that those bridges exist within us and they also exist between us. So what does it mean to say there's a gap within us? Um, it could mean that as an academic myself, I need to keep practitioner activities on the radar, whether that's through my colleagues, uh, through practitioners collaborating in publications and in technical reports and other media that I, that I see out there in terms of uh, research and practice products. Um, it also means paying attention at the conference. And, uh, you know, when, when I serve on uh, advisory boards or being asked for advice on a project, um, you know, there are various ways to have my, my uh, radar on in terms of reaching out to the practitioner side of me as an academic. And likewise, um, practitioners I work with, um, I see doing exactly the same thing. They're looking at publications, they're continuing conversations with academics, uh, both within and outside of biopsychology. And, um, you know, that kind of interplay keeps uh, our science alive and keeps our practice alive. You know, and, and the bridging the gap is where that networking happens. Um, I think some of the gap we point to is inevitable, such that, yes, maybe some resolution needs to be obtained in terms of increased communication. But in terms of the uh, kind of persistent types of gaps that would exist, I think it's fair to say that practitioners and academics have different motives for their activities and progress. And so if you see practitioners advancing science in ways that meet, um, uh, for lack of a better term, marketplace demands, broad demands by employers and organizations, and academics are meeting needs in terms of uh, advancing what is viewed as, as frontiers of science, that's understandable, and, and I don't know if we would want to prevent that. But, um, you know, to keep, uh, to keep both uh, so-called sides fresh, the communication needs to continue and still needs to continue to keep us relevant. And I'll, I'll say one more thing, um, and that is that if we look at a gap in terms of academics and, and practice, it's the IO psychologists who are by and large producing practitioners, right? The, the practitioners train in IO psychology departments, get a PhD in IO or, or a master's in IO, and go, go practice uh, for consulting or for companies. And I say this to stand in contrast with business schools where uh, I think an outsider would think, well, why wouldn't a business school produce practitioners? They are a business school. Um, but in fact, they, their uh, obedient management programs are by and large producing academics and uh, receive IO-trained PhDs as faculty. Um, so it really is a different model and it's not, it's not as practitioner oriented. I think to further uh, the scientist practitioner bridging uh, perhaps business schools could reach more into practice, or at least we're sensitive to where uh, the current kind of bridges are and uh, appreciate that landscape. Thank you. Yeah, I guess I'll kind of pivot off that. Talia Bauer, our future president of SIOP starting next year, discusses efforts that SIOP has made in order to bring practitioners and academics together for purposes of interacting and knowledge sharing. 
Dr. Bauer is a scientist practitioner who studies relationships at work and how they influence individual and organizational effectiveness and well-being. She's acted as a consultant for dozens of organizations and was a Google Visiting Scholar. Her award-winning work has been covered in numerous outlets, and she currently holds a dual appointment in business and psychology at Portland State University. She's involved in the editorial process of multiple journals and has a long history of PSYOP service across a variety of committees and roles. I think the bridges is really a helpful way to think about it, and um, you know, I think this might be complimentary and somewhat similar to what Fred was saying, but if you think within a person, you know, there's a bit wide spectrum of how much we define ourselves as a scientist, practitioner, or so some blending of the two. And so even within individuals, I think we do bridge activities to a varying degree. Um, but then also uh, to reiterate a, a point that Fred made, that specialization is so important. This idea that, you know, we want people to be really on the edges in what they're pushing, and then, but then also be able to have people who can generalize. And so is it the same person who's doing both, but that takes more time? Um, or is it a group of people? And what I think, why I would disagree that there is necessarily a scientist practitioner gap that's getting worse, is even just the evidence of going to the PSYOP conference and PSYOP existing, the fact that we have both kind of hand in hand, um, side by side, even if we're not in the same room at every session, the fact that we every year choose to get together and have these conversations um, and debates, I think is part of what keeps that bridging alive. And so the more we can work on things like translations, partnerships, exchanges, um, getting people embedded in, in kind of the skills and exercises of each of those kinds of domains, I think the better. But I, get, I guess I think that's kind of the magic of PSYOP is the fact that we're having these tensions all the time. And the key that somebody said to me is um, that it just never spins too far in one direction. And that's when we get off kilter. Absolutely. I, apparently, my um, contrarian view is not as contrarian as I thought perhaps it might be. Morton McPhail, the immediate past president of PSYOP, serves as a fellow of PSYOP and has practiced IO psychology for more than 35 years before retiring in 2013. He's been a co-founder and has served as a senior vice president in the consulting sector and as adjunct faculty. During his career, he consulted with clients on a wide variety of issues and served as an expert in litigation. He has published and presented on numerous topics and serves on the editorial boards within PSYOP. I have a tendency to agree with both Fred and Talia. Um, my, my position is that I, I think the gap is largely overblown. Um, the difference between practitioners and scientists is a continuum. It's not a, uh, a bright line. And um, uh, I spent most of my career I think most people would define me as a practitioner, but I was doing research every day. Uh, some of which I published, some of which I could not publish, some of which ended up in long, boring technical reports that no one uh, is likely to ever read. Um, but um, the reality that I see is that we were all trained uh, as scientists. We sometimes engage in practice, Sometimes we engage in science, and when we are doing both of those is when we're most effective. I think part of the perception about the 
hear these air quotes, gap, around gap, that um, part of the perception of that gap may lie in the difficulty we experience and how we go about recognizing and acknowledging the accomplishments of practitioners whose work is often conducted confidentially with little opportunity to disseminate it in traditional channels. Uh, I think that makes it much harder to identify and recognize people who have made substantial contributions. And, um, and I think that's part of what contributes to that perception that there's a, that there's a gap. I, I think that the perception is more uh, uh, around those kinds of issues than it is around any kind of substantive difference between how we approach our profession. It is certainly not uncommon for uh, academicians to engage in some form of practice as consultants, working with consulting firms. I know that I, I had that experience many times uh, throughout my career of working with folks who were primarily in academic positions, but they, they joined us in project work, they uh, advised us, they helped us, they uh, contributed to the, the work we were doing. And that kind of, of uh, team effort it just erases that that gap in, in many ways. So uh, if there's a, a point to be made where we need to improve, it's that increasing the level of communication between people primarily engaged in research and people primarily engaged in, in application of that research is, is something we should keep at the forefront of our thinking. I think uh, Fred's uh, view of Team PSYOP helps to, to make that, that linkage. So based on, on what we've just discussed, you know, a lot of times, especially it seems with this situation, change begins with the individual. Um, so do you all have any sort of action steps that students, practitioners, um, academicians can take to increase these modes of communication and decrease this sort of issue with, the, with bridging the gap? Yeah, I think there are lots of examples um, you know, throughout I.O. and then also at PSYOP. Um, I think as we get the training, I think the training really is the basis. And so, for example, at Portland State, when we have the PhD students going through, everyone's required to do a pretty extensive internship. And so they really have to be embedded in doing the work. And that's where they get a taste of, you know, they've had the academic side and then they see that side. No matter what path they end up taking, both are enriched that way. And we see people a lot more flexible after going through those experiences. Uh, I'm not sure how universal that is at every program, but I think those are the kinds of things that we should do more at once you're, you're, if you're in academia and you're tenured, why not be embedded in a company? Why not try on some of those skills? Um, in, in addition, if you're in a company and you might be interested in doing some teaching and coming and helping out on the adjunct front, I think there's lots of exchanges and partnerships um, that I'll be exploring and seeing how much we can kind of build that into the DNA of what an IO psychologist looks like. Elliot hits, hits right on the, the, the key issue. That is finding ways where we interact more. Certainly, uh, uh, over a period of, of 35 years, I had literally 100 or more uh, interns working for us uh, and giving them an opportunity to see both sides of, of that equation while also um, serving as an adjunct faculty uh, at a couple of universities where I taught classes and le guest lectured and that sort of thing. So those kinds of interactions help to, I think, eliminate or remove the, the perception of a gap and give us 
better outcomes in the work that we're doing. I also think just building onto that is, you know, how do we, how do we do this? Um, at some level, it's creating the opportunities, uh, but it's more than that because we create opportunities and we have our own interests and energies and, and the goal is to try and marry the two. And how do you get people to do that? So one thing I would encourage uh, kind of more directly related to your question is like any kind of learning and growth, uh, try to do the unnatural uh, or at least consider the unnatural as a piece of advice. Um, if you don't normally work with certain types of researchers, whether they're on the practice side or the science side, consider at least, you know, spend spend a little time uh, staring out the window and consider the possibilities of working with people that have different backgrounds than you. Um, same thing for uh, as a graduate student, you know, consider um, what if I did, uh, you know, engage in some online, uh, you know, informal course in learning R, um, is that worth it? These are calculated risks, right, to stretch ourselves. But, um, you know, that would be my advice is to maybe work with, you know, work with others. That's where mentors come in. Uh, but to have an open mind uh, within our community, uh, the SOP community helps us guide that those possibilities. So I think the more we kind of communicate more and, and force ourselves into the, entertaining these other possibilities, even if we don't pursue them all, that makes us better to explore that space better and, and make the opportunities to explore uh, more evident. I think that's important for SIOP to do. Even if you're not sure where it, you end up going, uh, setting up those networks is important. Absolutely. And there's something of a pay it forward notion too, right? Is to, um, to ensure the future of our discipline, it pays for everybody to make everybody else better. Um, and that's what, that's what we're trying to do here. Um, in, we're not just closing a gap for its own sake, we're, we're really advancing uh, the impact and, and nature of what we do by, uh, by thinking about it deliberately and, and working on it further. So some interesting perspectives from Dr. Oswald, Dr. McPhail, and Dr. Bauer. I think moving forward, it's very important to act on these strategies, like gaining sufficient experience in both academia and practice. For instance, going to a seminar or taking a class on R statistics, or getting some hands-on experience working with organizations. And also considering the gap, or the bridge rather, as being merely perception-based and that if both academics and practitioners are proactive about interacting with each other and creating opportunities that marry the interests and goals of both parties. Consider the unnatural, as Dr. Oswald suggests. So thus far, we've discussed the value of knowledge sharing and, of course, how this contributes to the enrichment of science in our field. In relation to this topic, Dr. McPhail and Dr. Oswald speak on this idea of science as a commodity, how everyone wants to be at the forefront of science, and how this sort of competition-like mindset impacts our field. Well, it's not a new phenomenon, first of all. This has been going on for a while, nor is it unique to I.O. 
a number of different scientific uh, areas have experienced uh, some of these, these same issues. Mm -hmm. To the extent that scientific research leads to the creation of uh, intellectual property that is then, and I would say quite reasonably, sought to be protected, we limit the advancement of the overall field. You know, science works in increments with new ideas building off old ideas and research subjecting predictions and claims to rigorous testing. Now, those things really can't happen if the science is locked in a black box. Um, so we find ourselves in something of a dilemma. On the one hand, our science is producing results that have such significant value that organizational leaders recognize and want to protect it. So we're, we're doing good work and they're, they're pleased to see that. At the same time, future developments may be restricted and of less value because they aren't shared with other researchers and other practitioners. I would also point out that this whole topic plays into a host of issues around robust and reliable science. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, how one tests, how, how does one test for um, questionable research practices or identify them if indeed uh, the, the research is not publicly available? So I think the, the whole notion of this, you know, research turning out product that is then protected as intellectual property um, is somewhat validating for the profession while at the same time somewhat risky for the profession. And I'm not suggesting that I know an answer to that question, but I think it's one we need to pay close attention to. Um, other sciences have experienced this. Uh, the, the field of genetics went through a whole period where people were, were uh, you know, copywriting actual genetic code, and, and they still are, as a matter of fact. Uh, the, uh, the pharmaceutical profession has had some of that problem, uh, and, and so it's difficult to have peer-reviewed research when, in fact, you're trying to keep the research from being uh, revealed. Um, I think that, uh, uh, that practitioners experience this a lot. I will give you an example of one of the biggest projects I ever worked on was for a major oil company. And the, the work we were doing was at that time really, really, really cutting edge. It was some stuff that I thought was eminently publishable. And, and I was pretty proud of the work we were doing. Um, and I asked our internal project manager if uh, he would like to, to, if it would be okay if we published it and would he like to join us in preparing the article. And his response was, absolutely not. This, uh, we view this project as a competitive advantage. We expect this work to get for us our unfair share of the best qualified candidates. That's why we're paying you to do this. And no, you may not share it. That is, for me, an iconic example <laughs> of commoditization of science and the dilemma that it presents us. But there is, there is this tension, as Mort noted, um, that companies, like academics sometimes, they want to be viewed as thought leaders. They want to be at the forefront. And so I've worked with companies that... Um, 
you know, want to maintain a balance. They, they want the competitive edge and their, their unfair share in the marketplace. But part of that um, includes the competitive advantage of being a thought leader. And to some extent, that means you, you do share your ideas. Um, it's sort of like the idea of freeware. Why would you give software away for free? It's to have a major imprint on your users um, for future benefit that may be undefined sometimes, but could be brand recognition. It could be leading into other products. Um, so the proprietary side of this is very much recognized for its value. Um, or potential value, but then there is this other side of getting your name out there just to uh, to get a foothold. That's a really good point, Fred, um, and and I would hope that that is a direction that gets fostered in the future. Uh, in fact, uh, one trend that people have pointed to is a breaking down of of those kinds of intellectual property barriers, more op opportunities for collaborative working on things like like uh, multi-source software and, and programs like R and, and, and others have shown great benefit. I don't think we're going to see an end to the competitive marketplace immediately, but there may be some, some ways to leverage those changes in the future. Is it of your opinion that we are getting increasingly more competitive as practitioners, as researchers, I don't know, I can't speak for researchers, but I would say the competition in the practice arena um, has it certainly has uh, become more obvious. If It was probably always there, but it's become more obvious in recent years. And I, I, you know, I don't know to what extent that's true in the research arena or not, competing for scarce research funds. Yeah, I, there, there certainly is competition for research funds from agencies. Um, competition happens in various forms, right? It can be um, your name being recognized um, in the kind of social media arena. We have more researchers uh, Twittering than ever before, but um, it could be, uh, you know, competing in um, new cross-cutting areas, right? To be known as uh, a leader of the open science movement. Um, so I'm not I, I, I don't claim to have a broad enough or long enough history to know if there's an uptick on some overall notion of competition. But, you know, when, when practitioners are eager to share their knowledge, even when they're eager, they might have to consult their legal folks whose job every day is to protect the company at all costs, to err on the side of safety. So some of that can be perhaps worked through with a close relationship between the practitioner and the legal side, or even you know when when academics are involved. Um, I'm thinking a personal experience where I've worked with companies and their legal department doesn't want to publish. Um, well, that's a non-starter for an academic. So you engage in conversation about whether, what, and how things can be published. And those conversations can be valuable, not just for the particular project or paper. They can be valuable for establishing the relationships about what is okay to share and what, you know, would be helpful to the, to the organization, even, even if you are conservative about what you share and care about protecting the company. I'll give you a, a kind of an exaggeration is where a company 
wants to work with an academic to engage in uh, a particular um, method or scientific approach or analysis tied to a theory, et cetera, they're, they're very interested in work they've read maybe, which is why they're calling you. But then the worry creeps in of, well, what if the results aren't supportive? What if they don't, what if they make us look bad? And it's an understandable worry, but it's, it's really more polarized than the way research turns out and the way it's portrayed. Um, there's, there's real subtlety to appreciate. And, and at the same time, there's um, research is always cast in a more generalizable way, right? So you're always qualifying your findings. But, but in, in any case, having, having a healthy conversation when it's allowable uh, or when it's open uh, between your contact person and legal and, and just getting a sense of the organizational context and their culture for supporting research is really important in terms of uh, sharing uh, and being, being relatively open. It's a good point. Yeah, about research, I think it, you know, it's true. It's always been true. I don't know about the more or less part, but really it's a competition process, right? You're cooperating, you're building on other people's research. Um, if no one else is doing any research in the area that you do, it, it does not become a very vibrant field or area. Um, but at the same time, there's a, a, a competition in terms of, especially if we see someone, for example, doing a meta-analysis. Um, that's an area where I see, you know, there's really a first mover advantage. And once someone has a very comprehensive meta-analysis, there's less room to kind of fill in that space without a lot of creativity or rework maybe. But independently, I think I very rarely see people come up with exactly the same ideas. Uh, usually people are pretty creative. They read the literature and they're building on that in different ways. And so I think there is a lot of room for that back and forth. So I think people perceive competition sometimes. I'm not sure how often it really plays out though. I agree. That's that's a good point. That, And I tell my students that as well. Sometimes they feel like they're going to be redundant without what's out there or what if somebody, you know, does the same thing and uh, I have to reassure them that we all have our own uh, approaches to various problems and we all contribute. Sometimes there is more direct overlap, but oftentimes uh, I resonate with Talia's experience. Again, some very insightful and unique perspectives from our guests on the integration of or collaboration between academicians and practitioners and on the commoditization of IO-related science. Sort of switching gears here, uh, we discussed certain profound advocacy initiatives and efforts that SIOP is currently making in order to make IO more relevant and visible like PSYOP's collaboration with Lewis Burke in working to transport science into policy, and PSYOP's integral role in improving workforces in underdeveloped countries. So, uh, since I have you all here, I'd like to talk about this PSYOP advocacy initiative to uh, strengthen support for IO psychology research and practice among national policy decision makers. I mean, this is this is big stuff. <laughs> can can you tell us more about this and uh, about what SIOP has done and is 
currently doing to improve government relations? Sure. So SOP is interested in uh, making sure our profession has a voice, has visibility, and has relevance at the federal level, whether that is with the government in terms of policy, whether that's with uh, national funding agencies. And so this has been a multi-year effort in terms of evolving our thinking and our approach and how to do this. But over uh, the course of of several years now, we've been working with Lewis Burke, which is an agency on the Hill uh, that um, works with other um, professional societies, such as the Human Factors and Ergonomic Society and other uh, universities to take on similar efforts, basically to transport science into policy and, and vice versa. Our evolution has required thinking about what are the topics that come up on the radar at the federal level um, that are bipartisan in nature so that when presidential cycles change, we're, we're still on target. So topics include things uh, like policing. So we, had, uh, we have a, a policing uh, task force within SIOP that Amy Grubb is leading. Uh, she works for the FBI. And actually, if you go to psyop.org slash advocacy, um, you can see a number of the uh, different efforts that are going on that uh, includes the policing effort. So, for example, within policing, um, there are a lot of different um, kind of angles one can take on it that has policy relevance. So, for example, um, there's a leadership aspect. There's a culture aspect. Um, there's a bias aspect. Uh, there's a training aspect. Um, and so um, we have uh, assembled experts around these topics to develop white papers and to connect to specific issues that agencies raise and to be ready for future issues that get raised um, in these arenas. That's one example. Um, another example is a veterans initiative where we're concerned with, um, again, a variety of issues under that umbrella. We're still shaping those up, but they include mil making military to civilian uh, transitions uh, into the workforce, VA issues in terms of um, measuring, measuring and managing uh, performance. So I'll let my colleagues uh, chime in here in terms of the advocacy initiatives we're engaged in. One of the things I think it's important that people understand is that SIOP's advocacy, that's easy for me to say, advocacy mm -hmm. initiative <laughs> is, is, not the, is not the same thing as lobbying. We have uh -huh. not taken positions of, in fact, Lewis Burke does not engage in, in that kind of activity uh, where we are supporting particular legislation uh, or, or, or political uh, agendas. Our primary purpose has been to emphasize the value that IO psychology can bring to decision makers and policymakers by providing them with evidence-based information that is relevant to and important to the decisions that are being made around very complex topic areas, such as uh, police community relations, uh, the issues of how we trans transition veterans from the military into private sector jobs, 
um, and, and a variety of other, other areas, including advocating for the continued funding of, of scientific research. So we are supportive of NSF. Uh, we have uh, worked closely with the National Academies in trying to build some common ground there. Uh, Fred is a, and Fred, you'll have to tell me the title of the uh, of the committee for NAS. Uh, sure. Yeah. So I, I'm a member of the Board of Human Systems Integration, and uh, we've had past IO psychologists serve on that board as well. Uh, Steve Kozlowski's been on that board, I believe. Ed Salas has been on that board, and probably others I'm forgetting. Um, but that, yeah, that gets us involved with the national academies and uh, the federal issues they take on. Um, a recent effort that uh, uh, Mort and, uh, and my colleagues, many IO colleagues have been involved, was involved in was um, an effort that um, the National Institute for Standards and Technology went to the national academies and said, we want to know more about basically personnel selection and employment uh, practices that are relevant to the forensic sciences uh, writ large. So um, labs, forensic labs can occur at the, uh, you know, from the town level, the county level to the federal level. And there are various uh, concerns at all these levels, various stakeholders and various concerns. So we managed to bring folks together from uh, these different perspectives that are out there in practice, actually working in these labs or managing these labs to figure out where, where are the connections and uh, really to figure out our common language first and then to say, what are, what are some of the issues? How does IO psychology speak to it? So that, um, that uh, took shape in the form of a, a day long workshop uh, where a variety of folks, uh, both from the IO community, from the forensic science community and from the legal community um, all speaking to these issues and figuring out potential partnerships and projects. And uh, Lewis Burke, um, again, that's the, the advocacy firm we, we work with. They're, they're not a lobbying uh, entity, as Mort noted, uh, but they were there as well um, in support to help us fashion and further these connections. Not just, I mean, primarily this was a um, National Academies and BOCI event, but this was a great example where they hosted the event, but IO psychology was featured very prominently as a relevant, uh, where relevant expertise from our profession is needed. Just uh, last, was it last week? I guess it was just last week. We had our annual retreat with the Lewis Burke folks in Washington, DC and laid out goals and plans for the coming year. Um, Things have gotten more complicated in Washington since the change in administrations this past fall and winter, and we are finding new, trying to find new ways to effectively communicate our message that the science via psychology is relevant to and important to the decisions that the government is making and that the, that science should be funded because of that importance. Mm -hmm. Um, there are also new initiatives we are uh, scanning for and taking on. So a couple initiatives that I think have 
broad science implications. One is um, the robust and reliable science uh, task force that Mort helped assemble. That's being led by Steven Rogelberg. And uh, that is where, you know, iopsychology as a science and psyop as a society is scanning what is out there in terms of um, research, transparency, reproducibility, replicability, um, sharing of data and materials, et cetera, that is out there in the scientific community and seeing where we can come in as a, um, I wouldn't say a late adopter, but as a uh, second uh, wave adopter to see what's out there and take advantage of it and move our science forward. And I think as we build up those initiatives, because it is multifaceted, right? Open science is multifaceted and how we're gonna engage is multifaceted, whether it's in terms of how we educate graduate students, how we approach and, and uh, uh, engage in the publication process, and even open practice. What does open practice mean? Should we think about open practice? That's one of the topics I, I think about. So that that's a pretty, uh, I think, impactful and uh, wide, wide-ranging area that will tap into our other areas of science. We we learn from them, but but eventually we'll come up with new things that will uh, help science as well on our end. Another initiative is uh, a metrics task force that Steve Kozlowski is, uh, I believe, he's co-chairing that with Rob Ployhart, and the idea there is. What metrics can the task force explore and see what's out there? It reflects IO principles when expressing the nature of the economy and the workforce. So, you know, what does it mean to, from a psychological perspective, to have an engaged workforce, right? Is there a metric for engagement that you could look at, kind of like economists looking at GDP, right? And could IO metrics supplement a view of the workforce and the economy um, in ways that are valuable. So the task force, as I said, just started. There, there are no definitive metrics or, um, and certainly no definitive answers here yet, um, but they're, they're exploring that space, probably more than I'm representing here. But their work is underway. It's just beginning, it's underway. And I think that also will have broad science impact um, as it evolves. Very neat. And then another dimension that is you know, related, but on, on the side, I'd say would be all the UN work and probably um, mm -hmm. Fred could speak more to that, but that has been really a big advocacy situation as well. Right. Well, um, I, if only Lori Foster were on the call um, and, and others, John Scott, have done a ton of UN work, they could really speak to these, these issues. Uh, but I can say... Um, I've had uh, recent conversations um, about UN with, with uh, Walter Reichman, who's been involved, and um, you know he reflects how PSYOP has really had an integral part into figuring out the basically the psychology and the meaning of work um, as workforce initiatives get implemented in, say, under underdeveloped countries. Uh, I'm not as well versed as folks who are, are directly involved, but I'll say that, you know, it was a big step for PSYOP to be considered an NGO 
that status uh, allows us to be more involved in UN efforts. That was a big deal in terms of how we could move forward in our in our engagement in terms of having delegates involved uh, in UN activities uh, and so on. So we're we're now part of a network of NGO organizations that pass information to the UN. Every year, SIOP gets involved in Psychology Day at the UN, and so that's a way of passing information of you know what are psychologists doing at the table, and so IO psychology is is at that table, and we we've also because we've been involved now for several years. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, the UN established these Sustainable Development Goals, uh, which lays out the humanitarian agenda. Uh, a lot of it related to work for the next uh, over a decade. I think it's more than 10 years. So it's a huge number of goals. The idea is to not just lay out those goals, but to uh, measure them, how far have we reached in terms of these goals. And I know I psychology has been involved in the measurement and evaluation effort because of our expertise. So just to be a little more concrete is you know, the idea of, of people having decent work, right? That's a, that's a humanitarian goal, it's a workforce goal. So, you know, what does decent work mean? How do you implement it? How do you measure it? How do you know you've made progress around that? Those are things the IO psychologists on the committee are dedicated to. For anyone listening to the podcast, um, I think looking at sustainable development goals, I think would be interesting in its own right, but, but would get you thinking about how IO psychology could be involved further in UN goals. All right. Well, uh, it seems from what you've all said that SIOP is doing a lot to become, as your motto or theme, Fred, of uh, let's keep SIOP strong. So uh, it seems like SIOP is doing a lot more to become more visible as an organization. Uh, my understanding, SIOP actually has a visibility committee that is dedicated towards increasing visibility of PSYOP. So um, what are the efforts in which PSYOP is currently engaged to increase visibility of both the field and of PSYOP as an organization? So in your opinion, has has visibility improved in recent years and, and where are we going in terms of increasing it? Well, I think it's definitely increased um, you know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics ranking IO psychology is the fastest growing field. Um, but that can also be misleading because it's the fastest growing as a percentage, but the numbers are still small. So I think there's still a lot of room to do more. And the visibility committee is, I believe that work has been going on for a while, going back to the branding. So that would be an example of things that, that they've been working on. Or um, do you have more specifics on that? Well, certainly you're right. The visibility work has gone back quite a number of years, um, and um, they are continuing their efforts. They are finding ways to reach out to the business community. Uh, they are sponsoring an event that's going to be uh, coincident with uh, LEC uh, to uh, uh, offer information and insight to business leaders around the same time that LEC is going to happen. They've worked hard uh, in terms of being sure that whenever we have newsworthy events at our at our conference or uh, otherwise, they made sure that we get contact with the news media. I think the, the very fact that there have been a number of situations where IO psychology has been 
and reached out to by others in the last few years. Uh, certainly, uh, for example, when, uh, when NAS was charged with evaluating the ONET, uh, they, they went to turn to Nancy Tippins to, to chair that, uh, that work. Um, and I think we can find many examples where IO psychology is becoming better and better known as a profession. Um, I think part of the issue that, that we still have to deal with, that we are still working hard to deal with, is that we all tend to be enamored of our own uh, language and uh, a kind <laughs> of uh, enjoyment of big words in science. <laughs> and so, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, work that's being done in that area, the, the translation of, of our science into some more pragmatic kinds of of uh, uh, things. Uh, Steve Koslowski has done a lot of work in that area. Ed Salas has taken on that as a, a central focus for himself recently. He really believes strongly in the translation of science into uh, things that people can understand uh, on, a, on an everyday basis. And uh, I think that sort of, of initiative and work needs to continue certainly as we are able to translate our science into things that people understand and see use for, we become more visible. So because we have essentially here uh, the voice of the past, present, and future of PSYOP, can you all speak to how PSYOP membership has changed in recent years? One obvious way in which membership has changed has been in offering a pathway to membership for folks with a master's in IO psychology. So given uh, a track record of engagement in PSYOP, there's a way to uh, then become a full member. And uh, that is, I hate to be redundant here, but the pathway is a new pathway um, to bring in yeah. other, other members uh, into, into the fold. So that's changing. And I think coincident with that, it's not the mere fact that we have a pathway for folks with master's degrees to be full members. Um, we have a lot of folks with master's degrees that are um, becoming engaged in PSYOP. So um, I've looked at some initial statistics and um, you just see a real groundswell of folks with, uh, with master's degrees in IO psychology uh, coming into PSYOP and being engaged in PSYOP. That really changes our, um, our numbers and our nature. And we also have record numbers. Um, I recently saw that we're over 9,000 in terms of our membership, which is the highest level that wow. we've ever been at. And also we did away with a unique category of international affiliate and now international members are just regular PSYOP members. And, and Talia's point's well taken that those numbers are real um, and they don't even really reflect uh, the impact of the growth that we can expect, I think, in membership uh, as more people qualify under the rules to move uh, to membership who have master's level uh, education. Um, because we only have a few people who have taken advantage of that pathway at this point. I expect that to increase in the future. And one of the things I think that, that we will see, one of the ways I think that that will affect the nature of our membership is that um, it is the case that most master's level IOs go into in-house or into consulting firm positions. Uh, relatively few of them go into academia. Um, that suggests that there may be a growing number of practitioners 
with interests in some day-to-day -day topics that are frequently encountered in those kinds of positions, such as transactional issues, employee survey issues, uh, development considerations throughout larger organizations. And given some of the trends we're seeing in, in the nature of work, I think we can expect that more of our members will change organizations and they will change their interests more rapidly than previously, all of which places a premium on SIOP being alert and nimble in responding to those interests and the changing needs of our membership. Yeah, and um, after, after attending the conference in Orlando this year, it appeared to me that SIOP is really branching out and taking action towards connecting members, for instance, with incorporating that really awesome WOVA app. I mean, that was just incredible and taking steps towards being more inclusive, it seemed to me. It seems there's this major movement here from what you've said uh, towards increasing not only the quantity of members, but improving the quality of SIOP membership. Talia, as the new president-elect, you've expressed that a primary goal of yours is to make SIOP a more inclusive organization. Would you elaborate more on this goal and on how you plan to achieve higher inclusivity? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll be spending this year really fleshing out the details of that um, and trying to build on what Morton, Fred, and others have done. But really, if you think about inclusiveness, it's about a culture, partially, right? So having a culture where people feel welcomed and included. I think a big component of it is identity. And so letting people self-identify and see themselves in the organization and see acceptance for that. But I think it's also a responsibility. So when I think about how I'd articulate this, I guess maybe a push and a pull. I think people need to feel welcomed and invited and have mechanisms for that. Uh, and then I think people also need to feel like they can volunteer and raise their hand. Um, and if you see something that you wish was different, what can you do to help make that happen? And if you feel like you're part of something deeply, that's kind of natural. Um, but I do hear, and I, I think the app will help with that and other things we can do in real time. You know, why doesn't anyone ever do this? Why doesn't anyone ever do that? And I think we have people in the room who probably could answer those things, but they're not always talking to the person asking the question. So a part of continuing on the communication is trying to think about what we might be able to do in real time about finding answers to these questions when people have them. So a one-stop shop where you could um, ask a question and then somebody would be a clearinghouse to find the right person to answer that question. SIOP is, it's big. We have 9,000 members. We have over 1,500 volunteers. Um, that's formal volunteers beyond the informal things that people do every day. And so it's hard to have one person who knows who everybody is. Um, but if we could get a team working on that, I think that a lot of misunderstandings where maybe people don't feel included or don't feel like they're represented could be cleared up really quickly. So those are the types of things I'd like to work on. Uh, Talia, didn't anyone tell you that one of the roles of the president is to know who everyone is? Well, I figure I'll be manning that, <laughs> right? <laughs> okay, well, um, as we're wrapping up here, was, is there anything that Mort or Fred that you'd like to add to this uh, initiative towards making SIOP more inclusive? Well, I think just resonating with what has already been said that SIOP makes every effort to create networks that can come through networks of opportunity by starting initiatives around projects. Um, it can also come in the form of setting up communities of interest at the SIAP conference. 
it comes in a variety um, of forms, and then we hope that people engage. And another form is the lab um, registries that are uh, uh, developed and are being developed um, in terms of advocacy and uh, humanitarian slash pro-social. Those registries are meant to bring people together from various um, walks of life, various sources of expertise. But it's not just if you build it, they will come. We can't we can't assume that. Uh, we have to encourage people to use our registries. We have to encourage people to engage in communities of interest. It, it, it's one thing to say you want it and, it, and it's one thing to build it, and it's quite another thing to ensure that engagement happens and uh, moves us forward. So we, we monitor all of that process and, and try and stimulate that process in, in ways that our members uh, hopefully find beneficial. For more information and news regarding PSYOP advocacy initiatives, check out psyop.org advocacy. PSYOP also encourages its members to stay informed and involved with PSYOP government relations through the PSYOP in Washington column in TIP and through regular updates in the monthly news briefs e-newsletter. We'd love to hear any feedback you may have or suggestions for future topics of discussion, so please feel free to email us at podcast at psyop.org. I'm your host, Kelly Stewart. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this discussion and stay tuned for more to come on the next episode of the IO Podcast.